Hey everybody, welcome to my Friends Hate Freedom podcast. I'm Bearsner and I'm here with Chris Kofer. He's the main director producer of Stateless Film Productions. Um, the Monopoly on Violence and Overpoliced are the two movies that they have done so far. Chris, thanks for coming on. Hey, anytime. I'm glad to be a part of your podcast, Bearsner. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so how did you get into um a making movies and b the the whole liberty thing well filmmaking is one of those things that i uh i wanted to do since um i mean i think i initially wanted to be a writer of like comic books or something and uh but at some point i decided that writing films was going to be more interesting and so when i was like 21 i moved out to los angeles um you know on the, the pretense of going to film school and uh that you know film school lasted about six months they uh they wanted to wanted you to take courses in everything except what you're interested in for the first two years. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I can't take a writing course until my third year. And I didn't really care for that. So I was like, you know what? I can read a lot of books. I can read screenplays. I can work in the industry and, and learn about writing that way. And so that's what I did. I ended up working, uh, but in uh, post-production, which is of course, everything that happens after the camera stopped rolling. You know, that's when they uh, transfer footage as this is back when, yeah, almost everything was uh, still shot on film. And so, um, you know, I worked in post for about nine years and I, you know, helped uh, make a few short films with some friends, wrote several screenplays, uh, you know, with friends and uh, I think one or two on my own. And in 2005, I ended up moving back to the Southeast and just sort of working for a bit. And it wasn't until like late 2018 that I thought, you know what, maybe I could make my own documentary about, um, you know, because I'd been a libertarian actually since uh, since college, which was like early to mid nineties. Um, so it's like, I it was one of those people who was like um, a libertarian, like when 9-11 happened. And so it was like one of those things where I just, you know, realized that, you know, we were in much more trouble than, uh, you know, than most people realized because, you know, Everybody was like, oh, wow, that's that's kind of crazy, because, I mean, if if you were around during 9-11, um, you know, you got to see the drastic changes that took place in the country. And, um, you know, there's just there's really just been nothing like it, you know, since. But um, as far as filmmaking goes, yeah, I thought, uh, you know, I could make a documentary on uh, on anarchism. Uh, you know, I was initially going to make it exclusively about anarcho-capitalism. And uh, then I, I talked to my buddy, Robert Beeler, about it, and he thought it was a good idea. And you know, we, we sort of developed uh, some early outlines, concepts of the film. And then we went to, uh, to Pete Quinones, uh, Pete Quinones, rather, uh, to find out if he'd be interested in being a part of it. You know, because he, uh, he was just sort of, um, I think he'd been podcasting for a year or two, and he was getting fairly popular, and people, you know, respected him. And I respected him, and I was one of the few people that was friends with them early on. So I was like, Hey, you know, let's, let's see if I'll go for it. And he did. And, you know, from there, we just assembled a team of uh, people that we thought would be qualified to write about it. And, um, just kind of went from there. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I remember him. I was listening to him by the time that he announced, um, the making of the movie and I got pretty excited about it. You know, it's like, wow, that's an awesome project. Yeah. You, uh, you know, you, you came to us through him. Yep, you know, yep. he, uh, he, had, he, had, he had several people that, um, you know, <clears throat> that wanted to help out in various ways. 
So it was, um, it was really nice. I was, cause you know, it was, it wasn't just, uh, you know, utilizing popularity of somebody, but I mean, you know, a lot of donations came from people he knew and, uh, you know, most of the, the bigger backers on the project, uh, were people he knew. So he, uh, he had a way of, uh, you know, in, inspiring confidence in things. And, uh, that was really helpful. And, you know, we're, we're still partners in the business and, uh, we actually recently went through a name change, um, uh, like less than a month ago. Uh, we're decentralized films now instead oh. of Staples Productions. And the main reason for that is because uh, this most recent film we did, Overpoliced, we, we just encountered such difficulty. And I believe that, you know, um, part of the difficulty in getting people to interview with us was that we were called Stateless Productions. So if you're making a documentary about a police-themed subject and you want to talk to people that work in police unions or, or even like sociologists or... Uh, academics it's kind of difficult you know it's like the only thing we really had going for us was that we had already made a film so people could could see that okay well at least they're they're filmmakers right um, and uh it was i mean it was just difficult like the over police was was so much tougher than monopoly on violence for a lot of different reasons yeah did um did the pandemic factor a lot into that because i know it was basically you guys were just starting making that when the pandemic kicked off, really. Yeah. In fact, um, we had uh, one of the people we interviewed was uh, he was really just difficult to deal with. Uh, the interview it took place in New York. And um, I mean, first of all, he almost canceled on us after we'd already arrived in New York. You know, everything was agreed upon and, oh, man. and all that. And uh, but, you know, he was like concerned. He, he didn't want to do it first. It was he didn't want to do the interview indoors. Um I was like, well, okay. I uh, and I checked with our Airbnb where we were staying, and we were allowed to use the roof access. And say, like, okay, fine. But it was like raining that day and forty degrees out, so suddenly he didn't want to do that either. And you know, that's when he, you know, he was. This was all communicated to me through his assistant, which is even more frustrating. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, we eventually got him to. I like, I sent like a somewhat terse email back going, look. You know, you agreed to do this, and you're the only reason we're in this city for uh, for this particular day. Because you know, we had other places we were going, but you know, I didn't really want them to to feel like they've been let off the hook in any way. And so they you know, eventually agreed to it and uh, came. And me and my cameraman had on <laughs> gloves and a mask and like a, a one of those stupid face visors, uh, clear ones. <laughs> you know, like the, oh man, the, the thing. The things you do for filmmaking, I got to tell you, uh, um, but I knew it was necessary because like, you know, otherwise this guy was going to, you know, flake out. And, um, yeah, I, I thought he, he actually really added some value to the film in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know who you're talking about now from context. Yeah. I was thinking of, all right, which one's outside and I got it. <laughs> right. And he was definitely, um, a valuable part of the film too. So yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. That, so that definitely made it more difficult, huh? I was also wondering if um, if the events that were taking place, especially in 2020, with all the George Floyd riots and stuff, if that like changed your trajectory of the film or changed your thoughts around it. Um, well, that actually inspired the film. I was shocked. Like a few weeks after we released uh, the Monopoly on Violence, uh, you know, I took a few weeks off because that, you know. It was just like, that was an experience. That was my first time making a movie. And, you know, it was just, it was me editing. And, you know, we had some last minute fixes that were kind of panicky. And uh, anyway, 
So a few weeks later, talking to uh, to Robert and Pete, and I was like, you know, any ideas on what we want to do next? And I, I had suggested something about the military, like kind of a counter-recruiting film. And, uh, you know, they, they thought that sounded all right. And then Pete brought up, you know, it's like, what about, uh, you know, what's going on now? Because, like, you know, there was uh, riots and, like, there was uh, – they burned down the one of the police stations in Minneapolis. And I was like, hey, you know what? That's a good point. You know, that's that's relevant. And we know that they're not going to fix the police anytime soon. So, you know, let's just go ahead and do that. And uh, and that was that was what started. And um, and as you saw in the movie, uh, Norm Stamper talks about uh, the George Floyd, uh, Derek Chauvin you know, situation, you know, uh, a few times. So it was it was very important to um, I mean, not just, uh, you know, what happened there, but, you know, the uh, the riots afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And it um, so did it actually change your views at all on on like what to go or just it kind of like those it inspired the film, really? It, it told us that uh, it was really kind of a market signal. Like it told us that this is a subject that people are going to be interested in for a little while. Gotcha. You know, they're not going to, you know, it's like we know that the problem is not going to be fixed. So, you know, if, while it's on people's minds, you may as well uh, explore it. And um, yeah, what a, what a journey that was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know it took you. Um, a lot longer to get everything put together than you would have liked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it took us probably two years for the whole project. I mean, like, which is kind of understandable for the first movie. And uh, that really only took us like a year and a half. Uh-huh. Um, and that was our, cause it was our first, but you know, uh, this one just took forever. Um, you know, a lot of things happened in the middle of it. Like I, uh, part of it was uh, me moving across the country, you know, cause like my, my wife's mother had a stroke and she lives in Tennessee and so we moved from Oregon, um, which is where I was when I edited Monopoly on Violence. We moved back to Tennessee to live with her and take care of her, which we still do. And so um, that was happening. You know, the pandemic was still, you know, the uh, the aftermath of all that crap was kind of still going on. And um, <laughs> what else? Yeah, I eventually uh, got to the point where I was I was ready to edit the thing. And um you know, I, I found that I, for whatever reason, I was not able to do it. Like for two months, I would, every time I would think about editing the movie, you know, I, you know, I would get distracted or I'd find some other reason not to. And uh, I just get like depressed. And so I eventually hired my, uh, one of my friends, uh, DJ Remark, who was a filmmaker in his own right. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm kind of uh, co-producing something that he's putting together uh, called The Hellgate. It's a horror film. Nice. But anyway, um, he, uh, he edited the movie. And uh, and you probably you probably communicated with him a few times uh, for audio yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, he was on one of our calls that we had, and then yeah. we were in that same yeah. group chat and stuff. And uh, like even when we ended up having problems, like um, like he was he was almost done with the movie, and the uh, hard drive died. <laughs> so you know, I was just like, well, what do you know? It's just the latest thing because I I'd gotten in the habit of saying that the film was cursed. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you saying that to me. (laughs) And and I was just like, Oh, okay. What do you know? You know, it's like, I should be more upset about this, but you know, why would I, you know, it's like, this is, this is the expectation now. At at Um, some point it just come becomes sort of hilarious, um, like a comedy of errors kind of thing. I really feel like that's probably what led to all the things before uh, led to, um, (laughs) to me not being able to edit the film because it was just kind of painful to mm-hmm. deal with at that point. Um, 
Yeah, and in fact, I had to watch it again recently because uh, the, the Blu-ray, uh, those are being made right now. But, you know, for when they're authoring it, they send you a check disc so you can see what it's going to look like. And so I had to watch the movie again, which is, you know, it's, it's a movie I've seen like a couple dozen times. So it's kind of like, ugh. Right. You know, you had to, had to pay close attention to make sure nothing was messed up and that the subtitles were correct. And, you know, they're like 99% correct. It's like a few, a few names that people didn't know. You know, like uh, like the uh, Bruce Benson mentions the Thames River, T H A M E S, and they spelled it as like Tim Postrius. Oh, yeah. So you know nothing nothing serious. Um, you know it came out looking better than the subtitles did for the Mop on Violence the first time. So it was. Uh, I mean, we had problems like there was some sociologist that worked uh, out of Emory University, which is in Atlanta. Um, you know, we we ended up getting to her office and. Uh, supposed to meet her at three o'clock and then it gets to be like three fifteen, and i i texted her i was like hey we're here outside your office at your building and she was like oh we had a, an emergency at the sociology lab and uh I, i'm you know not gonna be able to make it and i was just like what kind of horseshit is this <laughs> you know, it's like there's no such thing as a sociological emergency right um, and <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, like finding sociologists that would even return emails was difficult. Like there was a guy who was uh, who'd been on several cable news outlets and uh, I, was okay. I was like, OK, great. This guy might be helpful. Um, you know, and we had a few emails back and forth, but he eventually, you know, uh, I think de like declined or just stopped answering. But, um, you know, th the fact that she outright ghosted us was just a gut punch. I mean, like, uh, fortunately, the, like the, the director of photography who was with me, you know, he was like he, he was kind of doing all this for like very cheap and occasionally sometimes for free. And he was like, you know, he wasn't going to charge me for that day. Um, but I mean, stuff like that was kind of ridiculous. Like I was supposed to talk to a uh, a police union representative in Atlanta, but like he was like, yeah, it turns out my, my son got COVID today. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to quarantine and, you know, all that. And I just never heard from the guy again. So I, I sent him my contact information and he probably saw stateless productions, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was just like, you know, very few people wanted anything to do with us. Um, like there was a, I, I sent an email to the guy who, uh, who coined the term black lives matter um, because he's a sociologist and, you know, he's just one of those people that's kind of difficult to get in touch with. So, yeah, well, that's an interesting story with him because he, he originally had it as a solutions-based thing where it was about cooperating right. with police and yep. um and yeah like then he kind of the whole thing got co-opted and yeah, the, he's blacklisted from the organization now if i understand it correctly that's not surprising i mean uh that's it's it's basically like the more you look into it um i tried looking into them too just out of curiosity i was like well, you know what? Maybe maybe they'd be interested in like one of the. I think it was like three women who uh, formed it, and um, they ended up using like um, this larger nonprofit uh, called like a like a thousand currents or something. Uh, it's it's kind of like they were using their um, their EIN, their tax exempt status, and so you really couldn't see any information about how much money they took in and what it was used for. You just all you could really see was like these articles about how so and so who runs. BLM is now just purchased like a multi-million dollar mansion and that yeah. kind of stuff. Or and, five. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and then I, and then I looked at their website and it was a bunch of like, you know, their goal was to stop white supremacy. And I was like, that's, 
that's more ridiculous than like saying we're going to fight the keep fighting the war on drugs. It's like you, you first of all, you can't even define what white supremacy is. And I can't even imagine America ever being at a point where somebody looked around and was like, well, OK, yeah, we finally got rid of uh, white supremacy, you know, because you never really say what it is. And right. um, that way you can just keep fighting it forever. You yeah, know, or yeah. keep collecting donations forever either way. Yep, it's that that abstract enemy that you can't really yeah. see or touch mm. or anything, and and therefore the it's in, it's always there enemy. in the shadows. Sorry, what so, was that? Yeah. No, I was just uh, I was trying to think of uh, other other struggles. Like um, we we had to innovate a few times. Like a uh, couple of interviews I did um, uh, remotely. Like I would we were in uh, in Michigan interviewing uh, Dale Brown and. Um, I had been talking with uh, Tate Fegley and I had seen that he worked out of the university of Pennsylvania. And so, you know, when I was working out, we, I tried to, to work out of like a, a traveling itinerary so we could kind of, um, you know, be as efficient as possible. And he was like, Oh, I'm actually out in, um, in like Idaho right now. And I'm like, Oh my God. And so like, I looked up plane ticket prices, like short notice from Michigan to, to Idaho. And it was like, uh, 700 bucks each. So I was like, I sent my cameraman and, um, you know, he, he Whoa. set up like a, 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 you know, tablet, um, like an iPad as for, for, you know, Tate to look at me. And as I'm asking the questions, cause you know, if you're, we wanted it to match the other interviews, which is like looking to the director off camera rather than looking at the camera, like you're on a zoom call or something. So, you know, we did that. And then I did another one of those in Florida and uh, it was kind of funny, like I asked them to take behind the scenes footage. So there's a, like a little bit of footage out there of of like um, uh, my face uh, filling up an iPad, you know, stacked on a bunch of books or something. While, while people, uh, you know, talk to me as if I'm in the room. <laughs> and, uh, I'm imagining one of those um, like robot <laughs> things on wheels that you see in shows and stuff exactly. where it's like an iPad rolling that's, that's around what it was like. the so, office. Yeah, we had to do that a couple of times. <laughs> And um, even though we, we didn't get to, to go as deep on things as I wanted to, I felt like some of the people we interviewed were uh, strong enough that we were able to get um, some pretty good points across. And, um, you know, we, we did offer some solutions. And, uh, you know, it's, I found that it's difficult to, to make activist films where you're offering solutions to all these problems just because, you know, it's, there's really no guarantee that people are going to implement your solutions and, uh, you know, this <clears throat> solutions, most of them are easier said than done. And so I think for future projects, we're just going to stick to um, more of a historical approach or just more of just documenting rather than trying to solve a problem necessarily. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I mean, you did bring up some awesome points, though, which one of one of which that um, I mean, some might see it as obvious, but it's yes. a big problem is just the incentives factor, you know, the the way they're incentivized to exploit us rather than um, right. to actually like protect and serve. Um, that, that, that's a huge thing. And if there's one thing that could be done, um, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't really have a lot yeah. of hope that we could save the system or whatever, but if there's one thing that could be systematically changed, it would yeah, be I mean, an incentive that's, structure. Uh, that's why we wanted to talk to people who, uh, who understood <laughs> economics like Tate Fegley and Bruce Benson um, just because, you know, there nobody really knows what uh, police service is worth because, you know, is 
there, I mean, other than like private security, but that's still kind of different because, you know, they don't, uh, they don't get called the murders and things like that. So it's this, it's this real gray area in, um, in uh, the, the social relationship yeah. that uh, ends up being defined by the state. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, um, I oh, guess yeah. it's a tough subject with anarchists in a way, because we don't want like anarchists don't want to have any kind of rulers. And yet there's like, if you have a town, you you could, you could have an intentional community, which is well within the bounds of anarchism and say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to get some of the young men together and have them, um, kind of do this protect yeah. and serve thing. And we're going to pay them. And th- suddenly you have a police force that's on a voluntary basis um, where you're all, you know, it's voluntary tra- interactions and everything, but uh, <clears throat> but you have something that is like a security guard or police force type scenario, and it's it it it, it doesn't necessarily well, look that different from what we have now, except for the incentive structures and the fact that they're getting their money directly from the community, not from like right. federal and grants we, or, and there's another or thing whatever about that is that um, at some point, you know, somebody is, is going to find themselves on the other end of, of that policing um, apparatus. So it's like, you know, you got to recognize that not everybody in society is willing to treat each other uh, with respect or respect their rights or whatever the you know rules that have been established in that community. Um, and so, you know, you're going to, you're going to cry foul as soon as somebody uh, comes to your door and thinks that they have the right to enter your property because somebody else has a complaint against you, you know, and the, there's lots of ways to work that out. It's like, you know, you're really going to blockade the person's driveway until they leave and then, you know, tackle them when they, when they try to <laughs> try to leave. It's just, it, it's a bit of a mess until, right, um, right. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a problem with anarchism uh, or at least with anarchists is that, you know, they, they don't like being subject to any system. But, um, you know, at some point, someone's going to misbehave, someone's going to get drunk and get high or just be a bad actor in general. And you're going to have to find, you know, ways to uh, figure out how to deal with people. You know, what's the appropriate way? You know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of like, uh, you know, ANCAP justice system questions where like uh, I think I wrote this on like a Facebook post a month or two ago. I was like, you're going to have a hard time convincing people. That, you know, somebody can go out and murder a person and then cut the family a check and still walk around free. You know, there's um, I mean, that's that's more more of a prison thing than a cop thing. Right. But nonetheless, it just uh, most people are just repelled by that idea. And that's kind of a, a key, you know, a key thing is that they're always like, well, you know, restitution is more important than locking people up. I mean, you could have both, but still it's like it really looks like. uh the rich can buy justice and, um, you know, the poor will, will be in uh, labor camps, which are just sort of euphemisms for, you know, prison stuff. And what if you go to a labor camp and you decide not to work? You know, you're going to starve a person to death because they, they wouldn't work off uh, their restitution. I mean, it's just so many, so many questions. And it doesn't seem to right. be a starting point for, for so many of these ideas. And, and that's really what makes it difficult. Yeah, it's... Uh... You, you can go over infinite hypothetical scenarios and when it comes down to it, each situation is kind of subjective and different. And, um, and right. at some point we got to do the best we can. And 
it, it takes people cooperating. You know, we're not, <laughs> I don't know if you've, uh, there was a meme going around um, a while ago about how you can't be, you can't live in an anarchist society if you don't return your <laughs> yeah. shopping cart. Like that's what yeah. it takes. It takes everyone returning their shopping cart. Right. It's that kind of, that kind of attitude. Um, and, and that's sort of like, it's, it's a really simple and yet brilliant um, uh, metaphor for, for what it takes. Um, but yeah, like as long as we're not there, as long as people aren't acting in perfect, like responsibility and conscientiousness, then it's uh, you have to figure out ways to deal with those people, and they might not all be right. very clearly and, um, defensive. A lot of people forget that uh, norms uh, preceded laws. You know, laws were kind of a codification of norms. You know, because people were like, "Oh yeah, I don't think you should kill people or rape them or steal or whatever." I mean, these were norms before they were laws, and if people can't really respect normativity, which is I'm I'm presuming what the uh, the shopping cart meme is about. Then um, you know, how are they gonna how are they gonna live on their own? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You if if you can't do the simple basic things of um responsibility and conscientiousness, then then you can't really live without rulers because someone's gonna have to make up for you or yeah. or um yeah. tell you what to do. Yeah. So that's um it's an interesting thing. I, I still struggle with all this stuff yeah. <laughs> within my own I mean, mind. <laughs> I mean, when all is said and done, is like you just try to live as uh, as anarchically and uh, you know respectfully towards others as you can, because you know you're there's there's always going to be at least in in our lifetime and probably for the next thousand years there's going to be some kind of a state or state like apparatus that will be around, you know, claiming the right to uh, you know to police us, etc. And um, it's just try to live as freely as you can within that. You know, there's there's ways uh, around a lot of things, but um, you know, at some point also you got to realize how how uh, how much am I willing to inconvenience myself, you know, in order to you know to to LARP as an anarchist. Yeah, you could actually do a lot of imprisoning yourself trying to yeah. <laughs> um, divorce from the system. Um, you, right. you could make a lot of sacrifices that are actually um, more confining than liberating. Right. It's like um, I, I see like posts from Agoras about like, you know, you uh, you shouldn't even be using a bank. And I'm like, well, you're kind of telling me that you don't own any property and you probably don't want to. Because, you know, it's like most people get a mortgage. I mean, and it's, you know. I And, and you probably have some friend acting as your bank for you or something. Right, like do, right. doing your some, banking. Some sort of, a, you know, straw representative between, you know, some sort of buffer between you and the bank and other institutions. But um, it's also kind of saying that you're going to stay, you know, economically small time forever. And, that, and that's not as secure a position as, uh, you know, it's like think about like uh, my earlier point about how a rich person, you know, in an ANCAP society writing a check and then that's that, you know, but that's the thing is that rich people are actually freer than, you know, people that are not rich because they can use their money to get out of a lot of situations. Um, you know, a lot more people tend to respect rich people, whether it's, you know, um, valid or not. It's just the thing. And, you know, you can actually have a better life, a freer life 
if you have more money. So, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with Jack Spearco. He yeah. talks about status jujitsu. Right. And he's so he's I would say he's he's a, an agorist or anarchist, but he he works within the system. You know, he, right. he has a legitimate business and he just has a lot of ways of being self-sufficient um, and sustainable. Yeah, that um, are his ways. It's not about not having a credit card. It's about not being dependent on that credit card. Right. It's about not being chained, uh, you know, to a bunch of institutions who can take all the things that you think are yours. In fact, uh, he's somebody that I want to interview for uh, another project I'm working on. Working on like three different projects right now. And uh, Ooh, tell me about yeah, them. Yeah, uh, one of them is um is about you know living a resilient life. It's kind of inspired by uh, you know the pandemic and. And, you know, how a lot of people were just really crushed by that, you know, because, um, you know, they had jobs and those jobs weren't, you know, having them come in. And so, you know, Spearco, he's got a ton of great information on the the Survival Podcast and, you know, his various other outlets. And it's just, it's like data that's relevant to people. You know, it's like having uh, economic security and food security and that kind of thing. It's like uh, how, how are you in a position where uh, you can reject, you know, your employer uh, trying to tell you, oh yeah, you've got to get this shot if you want to keep working here. You know, it's like, well, right. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe you know, rid your life of these kinds of things. I mean, and also like, you know, if you're trying to raise a family, it's like maybe you could, shouldn't have your kids in government schools because you know, all the, all the crap that gets pumped in their head. And, you know, every now and again, you'll hear stories about, you know, the kids being injected with stuff and the parents were never told about. Or they find out right. when the kid goes home with a Band-Aid in their arm. Um, so, it's, Or the parent tries to stop some mutilation of their kid and yes. loses um, custody of them. Exactly. You know, things like that. You know, it's like how connected are, are you to, uh, you know, outside forces that can control your life, particularly in a negative way. And that's um, that's the focus of one of the things I'm working on. Nice. Nice. Well, that's very cool. That's uh, that's something that my wife and I have concentrated on a lot um, in the last few years, especially. And I was already trying to uh, become sort of like I was already into Ron Paul and Austrian economics and stuff. So um, and uh, the 0708 that banking crash yeah. hit me a little hard because I had just bought a house. Mm-hmm. So that kind of kind of woke me up to be like, okay, I don't trust this system anymore. I'm going to try to sort of um, leverage my way out of it as much as I can. And yeah. to me, that just meant um, a learning how to do things myself. B investing in things like silver and tools and and just being able to um you know not trusting the stock market and my retirement funds and stuff like that has been big for my strategy and and yeah just trying to you know grow some food um have skills that if i lost my job i could turn those skills into um uh an income yeah that kind of thing yeah, that's, that's the kind of that's the kind of thing I want to focus on for that project. Uh, and incidentally, that's that's not something I'm doing with decentralized films. Kind of, um, you know, I'm working with uh, several different outlets, um, like me and uh, the guy who is the director of photography, Matt Goldschmidt, for Overpoliced. 
Uh, he and I and his wife, Elaine, are, are working out uh, that whole idea. And there's a, a few people I'm, I'm going to be interviewing already, but the Spearco is on that list. I uh, have not heard back from him. Of course, I only, I only reached out on MeWe, which I'd, <laughs> I don't even know how often he's <laughs> on there. But um, you know, not very often, probably. Right. It's like I I haven't been on in like a year and, until I went back on to ask him. So I may uh, I may reach out through friends of friends. I mean, yeah, well, I because I have his email. I don't know it off the top of my head, but his email is pretty public. If you just go to his website, yeah. you could probably just do the contact info thing and and. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm a, I'm a TSP member, so maybe that'll help. But also, yeah, there you go. He, um, he has spoken favorably of the monopoly on violence, so. I feel like that would be uh, make it things a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. That's funny that you mentioned MeWe because I think that's actually how I first got in touch with Pete about oh. um, the monopoly on violence. Okay. <laughs> Weirdly, I mean, I'd been listening to his podcast or whatever, but that was like my right. first direct uh, communication with him. Yeah, it's like MeWe. <laughs> but I haven't that, been uh, on MeWe in the, forever. Is that platform everyone goes to after. Uh, they get banned on Facebook for something dumb. And then it's like, I'm through with Facebook. And then as soon as your ban's over, you're right back on. Right, yeah. I had a weird thing happen with Facebook where I I had sort of distanced myself from it for a long time. I wasn't really going on there much because I was, even pre-2020, I was losing respect for a lot of my friends. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be friends with these people in real life, then I just don't want to see what they post on Facebook. And... um and then uh, at some point, my account kept getting hacked, and so I go to actually delete it, and this was only like a year or so ago. Um, and then they did the whole thing where it's like, you can't quit, you're fired. Um, <laughs> the, my account got frozen and banned or whatever, uh -huh. right as I was trying to delete my account. <laughs> Classic. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. So I haven't been on since then. And even like people post links all the time and I can't even follow them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, uh, oh! I forgot to mention, uh, Overpoliced is going to be uh, screening at a uh, one of these uh, freedom festivals. Uh, something called uh, the Great Create. It's going on uh, May twelfth through fourteenth. But uh, the movie's screening on May twelfth at four p.m. It's a Friday. At um, it's in Perry, Georgia, which is South Georgia, and uh, I think the website is thegreatcreate.org. And it's um, awesome. it's kind of like a like a. It, it's building itself as a, as a DIY uh, freedom workshop. They've got like uh, some of the stuff we've been talking about, like homesteading, those like, you know, things on beekeeping and cheese making and all these other things. And it's, um, there's like a seed exchange, which is really pretty cool because uh, my, my mom passed away in December and she had like thousands of seeds. So I think I'm just going to just go and give those away at that. The ones oh, I don't nice. need. Yeah, that's very cool. You know what? You're in Tennessee now. Yeah. Um there there is a great community of um freedom and growing yourself, growing your own food, sustainability type people um in there kind of centered around Nicole Sauce. Yeah, yeah. She's actually another person I'd like to interview. I haven't contacted her yet. Yeah, I actually had I sort of narrowly missed you when we were down there last fall. We were down there for a workshop, and oh. uh, it was a 
food forest design workshop that we were down there or food forest install anyway. Yeah. Um, Nick Ferguson was leading it, but it was at Nicole's property. And Mm. uh, so, yeah, it's been pretty cool to connect with that community. I made some really good friends there and um, I've had one or two of those people on my podcast now and stuff. And it's been, it's been neat to like not only connect down there and learn stuff down there but also continue some of those connections going um into my new podcasting venture and all that nice um yeah yeah so and and if you're you said you're near knoxville or something yeah just outside of yeah you're not that far from her probably an hour or two well i think she's near nashville right no no just like south yeah south of knoxville somewhere oh okay i didn't know that i thought she was like four hours away I'll uh, I'll have to look, check out her uh, website and see um, you know, see when the next event she's having is because yeah, I'm I'm kind of looking to get property within the next year or so, so you know, things like that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, Tennessee. That's that's a cool place to buy property. It's a uh, it's a neat area. I yeah. I love Pennsylvania. I love the climate. Um, the politics are not great. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah i actually like it here it's pretty comfortable people are very nice um you know it's like i was uh i was in a car accident recently so i was uh, going to physical therapy today and um you know it's nothing real serious it's just you know a, a bumped arm but um you know like everybody else there is like a bunch of us are uh sitting in chairs getting this uh electrical stimulation these uh electrodes hooked to our, our various uh damaged parts and you know everybody was just nice and very easy to get along with and, uh, you know, it's just this, you know, East Tennessee has a really good vibe. You know, people, yeah, that's people are cool. so courteous here. I have a great memory of um, years ago, I took a road trip across the country all by myself. Yeah. And my first night I spent um, near Nashville and I got up the next morning and went to a Waffle House for breakfast. And I just... I, everyone was so happy and talkative and cheerful. So like me on this trip by myself, having driven half the night, I'm just like, it was, it was such a great way to get up and have everybody be so cheerful and, and, uh, friendly. Um, it was really like that Southern hospitality kind of mindset. Like that is, that is really it's a real thing, especially coming oh, yeah. from from the New England area where everyone's kind of cold and doesn't want to talk to you kind of thing. <laughs> um, it, it was a neat experience. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I think I sort of took it for granted uh, when I, you know, growing up in it. You know, it's like we uh, lived in Florida for seven years in between, you know, me being born in Georgia and then moving back to Georgia. But, um, you know, it was um, Southern hospitality is, is, is a thing. And it's it's not gone. Um, had a lot of uh, population changes. A lot of people from New York, New Jersey, have sort of uh, emigrated south. And uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't think that they've um, been able to drive out the hospitality yet. But uh, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about the other projects you have going on. You you mentioned uh, a horror film. Yeah. Um, yeah. DJ Remark is uh, directing and producing a, a horror film called The Hellgate. It's about these uh, two. Um, two girls who are friends they're they're probably like in their, I think they're in their late twenties and uh, they have a, a YouTube channel and they used to be in a band together 
and their their YouTube channel isn't really it's it's you know it's about like metal and and um and other things. <laughs> Sorry, not the not the best representative for it, but it's like oh, it's um, fine. Anyway, they um are sort of stumbling home from a bar one night, and they uh, accidentally film a ghost, uh, you know, like in a graveyard, and you know that makes their channel go viral. And then these uh, ghost hunter people sort of uh, uh, find them, and they're like, "All right, what well, what is this?" And then they, they go looking for it again, and um, it's actually something that's uh, much much more sinister, and not just some single ghost sighting. And um, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away the plot, whatever. But um, anyway, it's uh, it, it's kind of an interesting little story, and he's uh, he's working with uh, financiers to uh, to finalize things before they can start shooting it. You know, it was like uh, they were were um, things were supposed to be shooting already. But, you know, there's there's been delays, you know, just because people can't, uh, um, you know, money, people can't necessarily agree on everything. So um, still uh, it's not quite in turnaround yet, as they say, which is which is like another word for developmental hell uh, from for studio projects. But it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, everybody's still kind of at the ready. Like he's already got a, a crew ready and like art direction and was about to have sets built. But, you know. Um, yeah, once uh, once the financial bugs are worked out, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be an interesting movie. He's he's pretty confident that it'll do well in festivals, and I think so too. But it's like I've just been impressed uh, watching him work, uh, like put like assemble a team and you know, like a pitch deck and all these things, and and get together like a lawyer and find investors. And it's interesting because like I remember like several years ago, maybe like four or five years ago. Uh, he and I have been friends for probably like six or seven years, I think. And uh, I remember seeing him. He lived in Ohio and he was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Florida. I'm going to be a filmmaker. And I was very tempted to sort of like laugh or whatever and be like, no, <laughs> no, it'll destroy you. It destroys everyone. You know, but, um, you know, he's, he's made commercials and music videos and, you know, uh, supports himself with his own videography business. And it's just he's really impressed me with what he's done. And uh, not only that, but like I've learned a lot. Like, uh, you know, looking at the information he's put together, it's like, okay, so that's some specific thing to do when uh, making a film because, you know, I'd I'd like to direct a horror feature at some point, too. I just have to get through all these other projects. Um, Another thing I'm doing is uh, working on a a project about smart cities. You know, it's like a a little documentary about that. I don't know if it'll be feature length or not or just like 60 minutes or something close to that. But um sort of in the beginning stages on that, uh, working with uh, Elizabeth Melton and Jake Green. They're both uh, instrumental in putting together this great Create Festival. So okay, so, sort of blending a lot of different things together. And a lot of, you know, people are uh, like, and, you know, Matt Goldschmidt and Elaine are working with us on that too. So got some, some good partnerships. Um, so, I mean, if nothing else, uh, things like the Monopoly on Violence led to uh, me getting to work with other people that are interested in getting things done also. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That sounds awesome. That sounds like yeah. it could be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to all of these and I'm kind of assuming, you know, it's like if one doesn't take off, then maybe the next one will. And, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, having different levels of involvement in some of these, like, you know, the smart cities documentary, I'm not, uh, it's not going to be like the monopoly on violence where I'm just involved in every aspect of it. You know, it's like, I'm sort of like helping with the writing and uh, organizing the project and uh, just basically using my experiences there. And so that I'm, I'm not going to be the one editing it and I'm not going to be the one doing the interviews. Uh, It's kind of a dream in that sense where you're just figuring out what needs to be said and who can help you say it. 
and then uh, figuring out in what order that will happen. So, yeah, that taking the back seat a little bit and and feeling a lot of relief, I'm sure. Yeah, and uh, with the Hellgate project, I'm basically just a post production supervisor, and um, you know, I've I you know because I'm a writer, you know. DJ asked me a few things about the script and I, I gave him some notes and, you know, a few things got changed to, to reflect that. And then some other notes he got. So that was kind of neat. Um, but yeah, I, I do miss writing and there's a, there's a horror story I have in mind that I'm probably going to write. I'll probably get started on that a little bit later in the year, you know, after uh, some of the other projects are, are calmed down. Cool. Yeah, horror is so. Is that a, a genre that you've been a big fan of for a long time? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like uh, crazy about horror, but like you know, I remember I've, I've watched a lot of horror movies as a kid. Like, um, our, my parents went out of town. They had one of my older cousins babysit me and my brother, and we, we ended up renting like three Friday the Thirteenth movies. And she was like, <laughs> "Well, you can't tell your parents I let you do this, that kind of thing." And so you know. Um, I've I've got my favorites. Like recently, I rewatched uh, Return of the Living Dead. That's just a fantastic horror movie. Like everything about it is good. Um, and you know, I don't know if I'm, I've even I'm, seen that, but I tell you what, Night of the Living Dead was the first horror oh, yeah. film I ever saw. Oh wow! And I was probably eleven or twelve years old. I think I was eleven, and saw it outdoors at night on a projector screen. Um, and then we were camping. It was like camping around Halloween kind of thing as a Boy Scout <laughs> wow. thing. And man, it was it was one of those things that because it's old and you can sort of see through some of the production stuff, sure. you sort of laugh at it in the moment. Yeah. But then you go back to that tent in the middle of the woods and it sticks with you yeah. and those images are haunting yeah. and like I stayed up being freaked out for a while. Right. After that. It's like, I, I don't really watch that many, uh, you know, contemporary horror films. Cause you know, it seems like the consensus is that everyone was like, ah, you know, horrors heyday was in the eighties and maybe some of the, you know, mid to late nineties. But, um, you know, it's, it's still an interesting genre that a lot of people watch and uh, there's room to, to fit in stories there, you know, that, that you find relevant like uh it's like i kind of struggle with like do i want to put you know any kind of state criticism uh in everything i do and i was initially writing a like a another project kind of a sci-fi comedy thing and i ended up putting that aside because uh, of this other story i came up with which actually did have kind of a uh, a backstory um involving like a miscarriage of justice uh, which it's not the main focus of the movie but it's kind of like what sets everything in motion so i was like okay this is the kind of horror film I could do. So, yeah, nice. Yeah. And you know what? There's so many mainstream films that that's such a great part of them. Like that's, that's part of what makes it speak to at least people like me. And I'm sure a lot of other people you see like that, that injustice and it just like, it gets your blood boiling. Yeah. Yeah. You know? it's like, that's and not that the gets way you into work, it, which is the way right. you know, liberty minded people see everything, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know sort of the state of yep. constant outrage but yeah it doesn't have to be the focal point of the movie right it, right it's like even you know. if it's and there was a few other things i was ex asking myself you know like all, so many of these elements in horror are just done to death whether it be like particularly zombies i really don't care for uh for, for that as much like that's been beaten to death vampires has been beaten to death and so you know i i'm not going to say what the story's about until i actually get it written but um you know it's uh something that isn't often uh, 
in horror. At least it's not it's not as common as uh, as the other big things. Nice, so. nice. That's cool. So yeah, I'm uh, kind of looking kind of looking forward to the Hellgate uh, moving forward, just so I can uh, just get that experience of working in production um, and you know watching a film go from from script all the way to the end. Uh, that's you know dealing with actors, not just documentaries. You know, with documentaries, um, virtually nothing is time sensitive. You know, except unless you've got a deadline you've set for your crowdfunders. And, uh, you know, it's like, I totally blew that on over-policed, you know, it's like, I was told them, you know, yeah, it'd be done, you know, like six months before it was done, uh, you know, but, uh, when you're working with actors, you know, it's like you, you really, it's expensive to not work within a time frame. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting restraint and I kind of look forward to working with it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole different dynamic. And from what you said with what DJs got put together, like he's got a real operation going yeah with i mean he's he's had his uh cast and uh and some of the producers go on podcasts talking about the project already so people are kind of uh, there's anticipation and that's smart because you know when when things happen like hitting a snag with uh, the investors you know it's like you can you can find new investors and say like hey look you know people are already looking forward to this and the actors we have have already been in this other thing and um you know when you're an indie filmmaker it's uh it's it's difficult enough as it is um, just because streaming has really, really changed things. Uh, you know, it's like you're working with even tighter budgets uh, and you're going to be earning even less money. Uh, it's, that's just the way things worked out. You know, it's like for, um, I really don't understand how uh, Hollywood actors that work in like a Netflix movie can, can even figure out how much money they're supposed to earn because they're supposed to be getting, you know, residuals and, you know, streaming is, um, even more like a cloudier than like the studios and, and you know, there's less transparency in their accounting, Yeah, you know, cause they tend to hide a lot. Um, you know, I'm sure they, they could use the excuse that they're protecting their IP or their strategies or whatever, how they do things. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's nothing like the studios in that sense. And uh, it's one of those things where I don't think you hear more as much complaining about it uh, because, you know, uh, listening to a bunch of millionaires whine about how they're not getting as much money as they used to is, you know, not, not very sympathetic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if there could be, um, you know, with new things like Noster and, uh, the, the metaverse and, or not metaverse, the fediverse, stuff like that. Like if there could be like a value for value model for film and shows, it seems difficult because it costs so much more to do it, to make it than it does to make a podcast. Well, yeah, but I mean, in a way, filmmaking costs uh, less than ever. You know, it's like, you know, uh, when I was out in Hollywood, they were just introducing things like mini, mini DV and people were making feature films on mini DV. Um, and, you know, the cameras are, are much better now. Like the cameras are to the point where, you know, no people don't say, oh, I can tell this was shot on a red versus, oh, this was shot in 35 millimeter. You know, if you're if you're really into film, you can probably tell that. But your audience can't, you know, as long as it looks like a movie, you know, and wasn't shot on like a VHS cam or something or, or like a mini DV, you know, you can you can kind of get away with that. Yeah, you could pretty much shoot it on a phone these days. And so much. Uh, sorry. Yeah, and so much post-production can literally just be done on your PC. And like when I was in post-production, uh, they had like hard drives uh, that would be like 
nine gigabytes, but it was the size of a shoebox. <laughs> That's what editors were using. So it's just like, it's just crazy how like, yeah, like everything is so doable. Like you can work with a 256 gigabyte um, SD card in your camera and just, and you have two of them in there. And when one fills up, you swap it out and it's, in, it's, it goes on recording to the next one uh, seamlessly. And it's just, um, and then, you know, things are more compact now. Uh, they've got like LED lights uh, that are as good or better than, uh, you know, the old, um, you know, huge, uh, heavy power consumption lights, you know, so like you, you don't even necessarily need a generator when you're on location. I mean, it's just um, things, things, it's like there's no better time uh, to be a filmmaker uh, than, you know, whatever year you're in, because it keeps getting easier and easier. Right. And the only real problem with that is that because it's so easy, you know, the um, almost anyone can do it, but you know, one thing that keeps out a lot of people is the fact that they just don't know how, they don't know what they're doing. And a lot of these Facebook groups I'm in, somebody posts like, hey, I've got a great idea. Who wants to make my movie? And then like everybody laughs at them. You know, it's like, you got to do it yourself, bud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and it's a, uh, I, I expect it's a somewhat saturated market, but at the same time, there's, it's not saturated with a lot of high quality stuff that's really thought out and, uh, right. Like I, ideas are still going to be uh king. Yeah. You know, uh, some, somebody's going to say, wow, that was a pretty crazy movie. I've never heard of the actors or the director, but I'm going to tell my friends about it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The ideas are the, the ideas and just, just having a good plot or some good, uh, Yeah, there's there's a lot you can offer of value that's not just production quality, not just the technology you're working with. There, yeah, there's there's ways to be uh, to to leave uh, an impression in a viewer's mind that they don't necessarily involve uh, hiring George Clooney or, or having a, a, a film score that costs like a hundred thousand dollars or something. Right. Yeah, and that seems to be the trick that Hollywood keeps going back to is like. Hey, we've got this shitty movie with some great actors. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, and we're remaking it. Hollywood's problem is, has been always been that they're out of ideas, and that's why they do remakes and sequels. Like I saw that they re remade Jacob's Ladder, and I was like, "Why? That that was such a. It's like one of my probably in my top twenty, maybe top ten of films, and it was brilliantly directed, like everything brilliantly written, and like all the actors that were in that, they're all still alive." So it's not like it was in black and white or something right? or, or was in a, you know, and it was already a story that mostly took place like in the, uh, like in the seventies or late sixties. So it's not like um, it, it looks uh, dated in a way that's, uh, you know, that harms it. So, I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to watch that remake because I've already seen the superior version. Yeah. I'm not even familiar with that movie. Oh, that's uh, it's Tim Robbins is in that it's um it's, it's really fantastic it's uh it's kind of like a soldier in vietnam and um it's, it's like the less and less i tell you the better you should you should probably go in blind because it's um it's just a fantastically made film it's like it's like horror and very psychological horror you know um okay yeah it's it's i don't want to it's, it's one of those movies where if you tell people uh the specifics about it you're kind of giving stuff away so you know it's uh it's really better to just say trust me and watch it yeah yeah we'll do <laughs> And plus, I'd probably be horrified with whatever way they changed it. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, it seems like the, the tendency is to just um, 
sort of stuff more action in and and get some diversity going and that's about it like otherwise it's not yeah. that different or simplify the story somehow yeah and uh you know, it's uh it's it's a good like movie if you like to think about things because there's points where you're just really not sure what's happening like if what you're looking at is real or if it's something that uh, jacob is imagining and actually it's one of the first movies uh macaulay culkin was in plays uh oh, plays wow. the main character's son he's like uh probably like seven or eight huh interesting yeah this is a movie from the nineties, you know, so Yeah, well I from context I can <laughs> figure that. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like just before Home Alone or right around that time, huh? Yeah, yeah, probably. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. He's an interesting kid who yeah, he's, I've yeah, heard him on Rogue like nineteen ninety and the Home Alone was probably what, ninety one or ninety two, something like that. Sounds about right, yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's about all the all the projects that I've got uh, queued up, other than a, a hard drive full of ideas that I'm not sure will ever get accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> so you you had talked about your your change of brand. Um, I see that Stateless Film is still up. Do you have a well, new website or? We were actually looking for someone to do that. I've I've had that as like the lower priority. Um, I've been trying to. It's really been weighing on me. Um, having this, uh, you know, getting the, like the film came out, like, I think I pushed it out like December 8th or 9th. And, uh, my mother died like a little over a week later. So that kind of took over, you know, everything. Like my, my brother and I were dealing with her estate. And at the same time, I'm like, you know what, I've got to get that movie, you know, out on Blu-ray because, you know, um, I'm obligated to, because of well, the, the fundraising, the Indiegogo thing, you know, where people gave us money and, you know, the movie's done and, you know, all the, Everybody who paid for it uh, has seen it, but not everybody's had their disc yet. And so um, we should, I should be getting those discs in less than a week so I can mail them all out to people and then, you know, hopefully sell a few copies at the Great Create when we go down there because they're doing a screening and then I'm doing a Q&A after. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks that I'm sorry about your mom. That's uh, it's going to be rough to well, do. Well, it was, it was one of those things where we, um, my, my, you know, we'd found out that she was having some, uh, some health problems that we thought were moderate. And so my brother and I, like the week before she passed away, we both uh, went, went there and we sort of like, you know, made plans on how to like simplify her life and how to and help her organize things just so, you know, while she's recovering, she would, um, you know, she wouldn't just be as, as bogged down and, and have things. And we were basically sort of like uh, clean the place up and, uh, you know, it's like she, just simplify her life in a number of ways. And, um, you know, I got to spend a few days with her and, uh, I think one of my only real regrets is that, uh, I didn't press her to watch the movie, uh, more cause she didn't get to see it before she passed. Uh, and then like, you know, a couple of days after I left her house, you know, I brother called back and said like, yeah, she's, uh, she went to the hospital this morning, passed away. And so, um, what's odd is that we were, we were kind of prepared to sort of take charge of everything in her life. Uh, even though, I mean, she wasn't like, you know, she didn't have a neurological issue or whatever, but um, we were just sort of, uh, we were we were ready to help her uh, in a number of ways. And so we were kind of in a certain mode, a uh, way of looking at things. And uh, when, when she passed away, it was like this strange uh, extension of that mode of thinking. And it was still like, horrifying because like she's one of those people who like uh, her mother lived to be like 96 and, you know, she was like incredibly healthy for her entire life. 
And, uh, you know, she, and it, she ended up having like, um, gallbladder cancer, which is like something maybe one in 200,000 people get yeah. incredibly rare. And, um, you know, uh, during that, um, you know, we think that that contributed to her having a heart attack, like, you know, gallbladder pressing against, uh, her other organs cause it was enlarged. Mm. And so it was, um, yeah, it was one of those things where we were ready for the worst, but we, uh, it was very, very low on our, our scale of likeliness like to happen, you know? So it was like, we're, you know, ready for it, but it was just like still kind of shocking. Right. You know, yeah. it's like she was, she was supposed to live uh, very long and very strong. Huh, man. But um, actually she, um, she used to write children's books uh, for something called uh, Amadeus, the traveling dog. And that was one of the things that I uh, sort of took charge of. She had a lot of unsold books and, Another project I mentioned, I did mention, uh, is a toy company I'm doing. It's these uh, plush uh, dolls. And so I'm going to have her, uh, her, her books were actually based on the adventures that she would uh, go on with, with her dog, Amadeus. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually going to incorporate uh, Amadeus into uh, the toy line to sort of honor her. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, and, and I get these thoughts of like making like a, a film about her, uh, her, you know, sort of career as this children's book author, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and other things, you know, it's like, I've, you know, like my brother and I've just seen so much of her life, uh, you know, and it's just, you never really, you never really truly know a person until you've gone through all of their, uh, their, their possessions after they've passed. Yeah. And then you're like, Oh wow. They were into this and that. And, you know, they had all these things going on that I, they just never mentioned because it was, you know, things that were normal to them. And, you know, just like, in my life, there's things I never told her that I was involved in because I was like, ah, you know, she's not that into it or she's, you know, not going to appreciate it the same way I do, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind these last, um, you know, four months. Yeah. Yeah. So you're probably still dealing with the estate if it's been four months. Well, it's uh, things went surprisingly quick. You know, uh, she lived in South Carolina and their their probate laws are. Uh, more relaxed like my brother was the executor and you know as long as i signed off on something saying that we didn't demand that the state do a final accounting of things then you know we could settle things kind of on our own like they allowed us to sell the house and we recently did so it's sort of sort of breathing easy after uh you know it's like every weekend i would travel from you know knoxville area to where she lived in abbeville south carolina and uh, it's a four-hour drive so I was just used to having my weekends wiped out and just always being kind of tired. Oh man. And, um, you know, emotionally exhausted. And, you know, those weekends are spent going through her things and selling things and deciding who's going to get what and what to keep. And, you know, it's, it's also like that whole process was uh, inspiring ideas. I'm like, I was like, you know what, I, I really feel the need to, um, you know, to ex extend her legacy, so to speak, I guess, not just as, you know, in my life and my brother's life, but, you know, her work, you know, trying to, trying to make it still, uh, be something that, uh, people would value. Cause you know, she like started writing those books like 20 years ago and only, only stopped like maybe, uh, 12 years ago or something like that. And she got married. Yeah. Was she publishing them? Well, she was self-publishing, which is another interesting thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, uh, the, the entrepreneurial thing. I may have actually, uh, inadvertently got that from her. <laughs> nice. So, Yes, her her legacy lives on in many ways. Apparently, that's cool. Yeah, my mom is a writer, and um, she's not published a lot. 
and uh, I would love to have her. Like, she's written at least one whole novel as well as a whole bunch of short stories and stuff, and she's given them to us, her kids. Oh, wow. But not many not many people have read them, and some of them are really good. Like, she grew up really into J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. And... And so this one novel that she has is kind of along those fantasy lines, but it's definitely its own story. You know, it's not just fan fiction or anything. And it's really, really cool. I would love to have that published. And, you know, she's still like, I'm still working on it. Gotta like work out these details. There's more, there's, there's subsequent books after this and all that. And it's just like, oh, we got to get you. We gotta just get get what you've done out there because it's it's exactly. already good, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like I and, um, I actually kind of got uh, reacquainted with my mother's side of the family. Like there there had been sort of a schism in, in our family because um, you know it's like my grandmother had had a stroke, and then there was all this. She was you know going from house to house of various children. There, everyone's taking their turns of taking care of mom for a few years, and uh, so I recently like got back in touch with them. Uh, you know, through my mother's, uh, you know, funeral or memorial. And, uh, my, her older sister is like 85 and she's, she's written like two books about uh, the family's history and she sort of novelized them. And so I was like, oh, wow. You know, it's like, it's apparently, uh, you know, writing is, is, you know, something my family's been into and found out like that my grandmother had had things that she'd written. And so another side project is, uh, trying to collate all that, that material, uh, that my grandmother had written into some book that we can give to her kids and grandkids and great grandkids so they could kind of know who she was. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we've, we've probably strayed a bit from the initial uh, subject of the podcast, but Oh, I that's fine. Like, it's I, interesting. I feel like we got, <laughs> got to some interesting places. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been interesting for sure. And, and you just got me thinking about, yeah, my grandparents were creating stuff as well. My grandfather, one of his last projects that he did was writing a book that's, um, it's really dense. Like it's hard for people. It's, it was hard for me. Um, I I had lots of conversations with him about it, but I couldn't just pick up the book and read it because it was, he called it Mentix, and it was sort of about inductive reasoning versus deductive reasoning, Thank which God. is what most of us do. <laughs> and and he was very religious, and also he was like an inventor. He was scientific as well, so oh, wow. he was sort of taking these two things and and blending them together. And um, did he ever publish and that? And yeah, what's that? Did he ever publish that? Yeah, he did, but like on a small scale. I'm not right. sure. I'm not sure. Like, I don't think it was ever distributed on Amazon or anything. Um, you he could did do that. He did at least finish it, right? Yeah, I'd have to understand it first. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe I don't have to understand well, it. But I mean, give it to know, some. Right? Give it to like you know people uh, that are in, into the philosophy uh, explication. Somebody like Mike Humor or somebody. And, uh, you know, see if you can get some blurbs. Oh, yeah. You know, at least yeah. find out if, if people think that, uh, that your granddad knew what he was talking about. Right. Yeah, he, I mean, he definitely knew what he was talking about. <laughs> okay. um, just, uh, I guess, the communication part, the the conveying the ideas or or selling them. He had people into the project, but it was more people locally around him who he already knew than it was... Um, 
more well-known names or anything like right. that, you know? So, yeah, that's, that's actually an interesting idea because, um, yeah, I, I could reach out to a few people and, and, and get it, get it around even, even if I don't know exactly how to represent it. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, if nothing else, people can give you insight into what's uh, being said and uh, ways that you can uh, sort of compress it into more understandable, uh, you know, things people can latch onto. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that, um, if I had known exactly, you know, what the timeline was or whatever, I might've paid closer attention and I'm glad that I had conversations with him around it, but me and my ego, of course, you know, I was, I was spending half my time arguing against whatever he was saying, being the (laughs) antagonist, you know, rather than just kind of like, soaking up what he was actually trying to say um but yeah he him and his wife were pretty wise people for sure and they uh they spent their lives kind of helping people you know um and they didn't they didn't have many assets when they passed away but they really lived good lives and what they passed on was just uh a really good example yeah to all of us yeah, for how to live that's something that's uh really hard to replicate you know people you know having the convictions to to live life a certain way and uh, you know to respect themselves and have other everybody else respect them and uh it's, it seems like it's getting harder and harder to pass that on these days right yeah we're all more distracted yeah. and and we don't yeah and there's like there's, there's less tradition people aren't really preserving traditions as much or uh, examining them or appreciating them and so you know you get uh, a bunch of people that kind of kind of feel lost yeah and that goes along with um just not ha- not keeping families together like multi yeah. multi-generational housing and stuff like that is it used to be the yeah. norm and it's not anymore at all well i mean we're uh we're kind of doing that here it's like we've got you know um we're living in uh, my mother-in-law's house uh, as she, you know, she's like, she had a stroke and had post-stroke dementia. And so she's, uh, it's basically, she's in uh, what's, what's referred to as comfort care. Like she's not going to get better. Right. So we're just here to, to make her comfortable. Uh, and as long as she's alive and for, um, we actually got our, uh, our kids to move out here. Uh, my two stepdaughters, Valerie's daughters, um, and, uh, little grandbaby. So it's like they're all within a few miles of us. Oh wow! And uh, for for that first month when they moved out here, before they found a house, we had four generations under the same roof. Oh man, that's kind of awesome. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm it's, sure it's uh, not easy in yeah. some moments, but it it's awesome at the same time. Yeah, it, it was good. You know, we had a lot of good times. Got some good good photos of uh, grandma and great grandbaby. So you know, it's just sort of uh, not. I like to think there'll be more of that, but you know, people are, I think more people are starting to uh, come around to the idea of, you know, living, you know, taking care of your family rather than just uh, putting them in a warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, I hope so. And it's, it's hard, you know, like my parents are getting old and I definitely want to be there for them, but, a certain amount of distance is also nice, you know, having, having boundaries is nice. (laughs) Yeah. And I, 
I remember feeling a little bit guilty because it's like, you know, I didn't, I, sometimes I would go a few months without calling my mom and you know, I only live four hours away from her, but I probably only see her like a couple of times a year, maybe, maybe three times a year, but you know, you, uh, you get busy with your own life and uh, you presume that they're busy with theirs. And uh, you know, it's, and when they're finally gone, you get to find out, you know, just how many people they impacted. Cause like uh, she had two memorials, uh, one in Abbeville and one in Atlanta uh, for, cause you know, she was, came from Atlanta. Yeah. And uh, the, one, the one in Abbeville, she had gotten involved with um, like the, the, this group to revitalize the town square. And she had gone to like the local high school that was uh, the Future Farmers of America program and said, hey, you got any teenagers that want to volunteer to, you know, help plant a bunch of plants around the around the square. And, you know, it's just amazing. These stories people tell you, you know, and you're like, wow, my mom did that, you know, and they like people describing her as a force of nature and that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. You know, it's like she, she really was kind of chilled out around me, but um, you know, when she wanted something done, she would, she would go and do it. And um, yeah, hearing, hearing what others uh, say about the people who have passed is always uh, just a remarkable education as to who they were. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I have definitely found that, um, with some of my friends' parents who have passed away recently and stuff like that, it's like, wow, I, I had no idea how much they did because they were always just so-and-so's mom, you know, cooking yeah. us dinner, right. reprimanding us for our bad behavior, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, well into our 20s, I might like add. A, a motivation <laughs> to, uh, to realize that, you know, you should be building, like, everything you're doing should be working towards uh, whatever your epitaph is going to be. You know, it's like, oh, it's so-and-so. They did this, and they worked on this project, and they, they got that thing done. And, you know, it's like just, uh, just one of those reminders that, like, you know, you got <clears throat> you, you to gotta get things done. Yeah, yeah, and, and not just for yourself, but for the people around you too, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's probably a good note to end a show on, huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I had a really good time. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And you can stick around afterwards. Oh, uh, give me some plugs. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you want to watch uh, Overpoliced, it's, um, you can go to overpolicedfilm.com. Uh, the film is on Vimeo. It's playing at uh, vimeo.com slash on-demand slash overpoliced. And uh, you can uh, buy or rent it, you know, just view it. And we're in the process of, um, uh, I've uploaded it to a film aggregator, which is kind of like a, a mini studio for independent film types. Uh, so like currently the monopoly on violence is in 89 different countries right now because of this. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, over policed will soon be watched all around the country, you know, cause it's, it's been submitted and I'm just waiting to hear, um, you know, who wants to uh, put it on their various channels. But um, as far as uh, I guess, if you go to decentralized.film, it'll forward you to uh, our old Stateless Productions website, which we still have to revamp. So I have to find someone to do that. That should have been like uh, last on my list. But uh, I think that's about all the plugs I've got. Um, if you go to if you want to find out about the Hellgate, go to uh, bloodscribecreations.com and uh, you get to see all about uh, DJ's project and. Maybe even help it uh, come to fruition. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you again for coming on. It was sort of last minute, but uh, I appreciate it. 
This has been good. Hey, thanks. Thank you again. And, uh, you know, maybe we can do this some other time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 